I had actually fallen off keto during the summer for a month and put 40 pounds back on because that's what my body does. It's very good at, like I said, very good at losing weight, very good at gaining weight. But for the first time ever after that month, because one of the big things I worked on when I, when I decided to lose weight again was I knew I needed to be more mindful. I needed to pay attention to how I was feeling, how food was making me feel, what was I dealing with emotionally, all of those things. So when I went off the rails in July of 2017, I was finally paying attention to how food made me feel. I was paying attention to what those binges made me feel like. And even though I was still doing them for a fair amount of time, I was very much like, you can't keep this up. You know, you're going to go right back to where you're before. You're starting to feel the blood sugar issues again. You're starting to see all these things happen. You know, either you're going to throw your life away right now or you're going to make change. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full Podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without dieting or intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our super inspiring guest is Mike Gomery. Mike struggled with his weight his entire life. When he was 10, he had a humiliating moment that shaped the way he saw food and his weight. As an adult, he got up to 540 pounds and felt addicted to all types of food. Mike realized he needed to find a reason to fight for his health and eventually went on to lose 300 pounds. But after a brief moment of celebration, he made some decisions and found himself spiraling backwards, putting on 100 pounds in a month. After gaining most of the weight back, He did it again, learning from those lessons and losing almost 300 pounds for a second time. That was four years ago. Now he's on a mission to help others struggling with their weight through sharing his story, his coaching, and his podcast called The Fat Guys Forum. In today's interview, Mike shares it all, what it was like to be 540 pounds, the lessons he's learned, and the life he's gained. Thanks for joining, and let's jump right in. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, man. I'm glad to be here today. Glad we're we're making this happen. Yeah, so you know, can you take me back to the um to the moment that you realized that something was different about you? That's a good question because I feel like it that can go in a lot of different directions. What was going on in my life? I mean, I would go back all the way to probably when I was a kid, like when I was 10 years old and I wasn't that conscious of my size as a kid. I mean, I knew I was a bigger kid. I knew every year we would go, I went to Catholic school and we would have to get uniforms and every year I was getting bigger uniforms and growing and you know, weight, though, wasn't something that was a huge preoccupation in my mind. And then it became one in my family's. You know, it, it was around age 10 in my family's minds where we had this almost, I guess you'd call it an intervention. I don't think they really existed back then. I'm going to be 48 this year. So this we're talking 38 years ago. But my family got together. My aunt, who was the queen of Weight Watchers, was basically there with all these pamphlets and booklets and Basically, they were like, we need to do something about your weight. And I'm like, okay. And now at that point, as much as I wasn't conscious of my size, I knew that when this happened, that it was going to be change and all of those things. And we had, they convinced me that I should get on the scale. My aunt told everyone that it was going to be just between me and her and that it would just be us. And she wouldn't tell anyone. And we'd write it down in the little Weight Watchers booklet she had because we're going back now. I think now you can bring children of a certain age to Weight Watchers. They even have like a WW Kids kind of thing. Back then, that wasn't allowed. Back then, you were not allowed to have a 10-year-old go to a diet group. So we couldn't do any of the meetings or anything along those lines. So 
they set this up. We went in the bathroom. I got on the scale, well over 200 pounds. And she ran out of the bathroom freaking out and announced to everyone. So siblings, cousins, parents, everyone knew immediately what I weighed. And that was the moment that I was like, okay, this is clearly something I should be upset about. And I guess kind of be ashamed of and and started building kind of all those cycles that then stayed with me for most of my life. You know, I was great at many times losing weight. I lost weight then. We moved schools and a lot of stuff happened with my family. And so I started putting weight back on rapidly. I kind of hit goal weight around the age of 12. But then by the time I was 16, I was well over 300 pounds. And it was time for another intervention on the part of my parents. Uh, Basically, they said, you're going back on Weight Watchers or we're taking your car away. So I chose Weight Watchers. And it started that that kind of roller coaster, that cycle of losing and gaining weight. And I was never happy losing weight because obviously I, I enjoyed food to a severe extent. Um, it was a big part of my life. And I lost weight again, graduated high school, went to college out on my own, started putting some weight back on. I think during college, my weight stayed relatively manageable because there was a lot of physical activity walking around campus, walking up hills, all of that stuff. Uh, I went to college at Cornell, and that's in Ithaca, New York, where there's a ton of hills. The campus is all hills. So there's a lot of physical activity to kind of keep things going. And Mike, I just want to bring us back to this moment for a second where your aunt told you she wasn't going to tell you, she wasn't going to tell anybody anything, and all of a sudden she's running out of the bathroom announcing your weight, and you're 10 years old. What's your inner dialogue? at that moment. If you remember, I know it's uh, a while ago. Well, no, I it was betrayal. Uh, it was very much like this was a moment that was a big deal. Like this was that moment where I knew something that I had never really been ashamed of was all of a sudden kind of put in front of me as something that I should feel shame for and should feel bad about. And, you know, I think that that had a big impact on me then. Like the inner dialogue was, what do I have to do to please these people? What do I have to do to make them happy? They also that night kind of put it out there that they were going to pay me to lose weight. So I was going to get a certain amount of money per pound that I lost. The funny thing is, so I was going to get the money until I hit goal weight. And when I got the money, one of the first things I did was I went out and I splurged on candy with it. It was this pattern of, of not really learning any lessons. I just knew if I followed the rules that they put in front of me, if I ate the, you know, back then you had... Weight Watchers, ice cream bars, and chicken, rice, vegetables. You know, that was pretty much the the standard fare. Eventually, you start to figure out how you can fit in other foods to fit into that system. And so then there would be days where you'd want to fit in Reese's peanut butter cups. So you'd have Reese's peanut butter cups and dry chicken, maybe with a little bit of mustard for the rest of the day. But yeah, like it was very much like that was a, a big moment of awareness for me that how people responded to me was was going to have an impact on me. So what changed after that? So after that experience, after that Weight Watcher experience when you were 10, what changed in your family dynamics and your life? Like what was different then? It, the funny thing is that was right around the time that my parents were divorcing and things got rough financially and a lot of things along those lines that changed our circumstances. We went from the house we were living in to apartment to apartment to eventually living at my grandparents' house. And when we were living at my grandparents' house, there My great-grandmother had been moved in at the same time because her health was failing. So the eyes were off of me once I hit goal weight. They made the assumption that once you kind of hit that that finish line, that everything's fixed 
and everything's perfect and we don't need to pay attention anymore. But for me, I had just made those changes to make them happy. You know, I, it was never really about driving me being happier. I don't, cause it didn't really have that big of, we moved schools at that time. So I went away from kind of where I had been. I was bullied a fair amount, you know, when I was in the Catholic school I mentioned because of my size, there had been another chubby kid. And, you know, of course, then you become friends and he actually developed diabetes and left school for almost a year. And when he came back, he was a completely different person. He was thin and kind of was able to be in with the cool kids. And so soon it was like I was the outcast of the school. When I switched schools, I actually then, you know, because it, it's, this is the interesting thing like to think about, like the way schools are approached now here, you know, there's children are tracked based on aptitude and all of those things. And back then there was probably three or four of us in my, in my classes where we were just getting 100s on every test. You know, we were just because they, they teach to the median. So we were kind of above that the whole time. So when I switched to public school was when I was finally able to be in classes that challenged me and be around other people that were doing the same thing and kind of in that same place. So I made some really great friends and life was going well. And again, the eyes weren't on me as much. So I was able to go back to that comfort that, you know, I was already seeking at that age from food. So in those moments, you were seeking comfort, right? So what's happening? Now, when I process it, especially kind of it having stayed with me as an adult, like it's very much, it's like a drug addict. You know, you're, you're using food for pleasure. You're using food to get that dopamine hit. You're using food for comfort when you have a bad day. You're using food for comfort when you have a good day. You're using food to celebrate. It becomes kind of intrinsic to everything that you're doing. And in a lot of ways, I built an identity around that. You know, I built my identity to be, I was the big guy. I was the the happy fat guy. I was the one who was going to make sure that everyone had food when we were at parties and events and things along those lines. So take me back to the moment where you realized you were the fat fun guy and that just wasn't working for you. Like, when did you, when did you realize that? When was the wake up call to notice that like, hold on one second here, I'm the fat fun guy, but I don't know if I want to be the fat fun guy. Like, I don't know who, I don't know, I don't know that I'm happy with who I've become. Well, I think, of course, at various points, just existing kind of in our growing up in our culture, being overweight, you have points where people are telling you you should lose weight and things like along those lines. So I had various diet attempts. I was great at losing 50 to 75 pounds, trying a new diet, and then just wake up one morning and be like, okay, I'm done with that. I'm done. Let's go back to what we were doing before and go right back to food, go right back to, I loved cooking. I loved one of the things that I've talked with several people about is this idea of sneak eating, you know, like kind of eating in my car. And even as a kid, when I when I got a car for the first time, one of the things I loved doing was like driving a half hour from where I lived because I knew no one in those stores was going to know who I was and no one at the drive through was going to know who I was. And there was this vicarious thrill that came from those moments. And that stayed with me in a lot of ways. Like as soon as I was kind of out living on my own, it wasn't like I had this moment of, OK, your weight's becoming a problem let's do something about it. It was, okay, now I have my own kitchen. I have my own full-size refrigerator. Let's fulfill every whim. Every whim. Let's get whatever you're thinking you want to get. Let's have it be there and have it be there all the time. And if you want to order pizza in the middle of the night, you want to go to Taco Bell at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, that's fine. It sounds like that the freedom that you felt was the opposite of the way you were feeling when you were 10 years old, right? when you were being rewarded and paid to lose those pounds. And now it was like, 
hold on one second. I can do whatever I want. So having been bullied as a kid for my weight, it's when I got into my teen years and young adult years and things along those lines, I wasn't the kid that would keep his shirt on in a pool. You know, I wasn't the kid that would try to hide at, at, you know, at different places. I developed more of the attitude of this is me. And if you don't like it, get out of the way. You know, you don't need to be a part of my life if this isn't something that, that, you know, that you can get on board with. That's huge. That's amazing that you're able to cultivate that kind of personality with um, or that, that sense of confidence with being, you know, the size that you, the size that you were. Um, I, you know, I, because I, I had the, I had a very, I had the exact opposite experience. You know, when I was, when I was at, when I was at my heaviest, I was very much, I wouldn't take my shirt off in public. I was embarrassed with how big I had gotten. I saw your photos from, you know, your photos, your, your before photos, and it looks like you were living, you know, you were doing your thing. You, maybe you weren't necessarily proud, but you were doing the thing. Oh, I mean, it was because it was such an intrinsic part of my life. The fact that, you know, I got up to at my heaviest, I was 540 pounds. And at that point, I had built a life that revolved around enabling that behavior that evolved around because as much as you sometimes like you'll, you'll watch TV specials or you'll watch my 600 pound life and you'll see someone say, I don't know how I got this big. I don't know how this happened. I'm like, I can go back and dissect and look at how I made that happen. You know, career choices, job choices, living location, you know, kind of how I set up where I was living. You know, I used to, I worked for years in residence halls at colleges as a dorm director and I never really had to leave my building. You know, it was something where, so as my mobility declined, I didn't have to worry about getting food because I had access, you know. I was one of the probably the very first people that was using grocery delivery, you know, in the early 2000s when it was a brand new thing and it seemed weird. And, you know, now it's ubiquitous. Like everyone, when people don't have access to Instacart or, you know, Whole Foods now or Prime now and all of those things, like it seems weird to them. But back then that was a different thing. Like people were like, you get groceries delivered. But I was getting groceries delivered because I couldn't walk through the store. Like I didn't have the physical stamina to be able to walk through the store. But I was so driven by my food addiction, that a lot of these things that I think would people will hear and see as red flags and things that would make a person be like, I desperately need to make change were my normal. They were things that I just continued to normalize. I continued to be like, this is just my life. This is how my life is. I need two seats on a plane. Well, I'm going to make sure that I get two seats on a plane. I'm not going to fit somewhere. You know, I go to Disney World and I can't walk around. Okay, I'm going to rent a scooter and make sure it can carry me. You know, I was very much into adapting my life to fit consumption instead of thinking, well, is this impacting my life? You know, is this keeping me from things or the things I'm missing out on? And I think in a lot of ways, having grown up very, very fat, I didn't know I was missing things because I never experienced them. So it wasn't as if, you know, I was the athlete that all of a sudden could no longer play a sport and felt that void. It was, I worked in a restaurant. I loved cooking. This is my fun. This is what I, you know, Gathering cookbooks was was something I did for fun, finding new ingredients, finding new ways, new restaurants, new places to go. And I was a, a pro at making sure that I could go to places. How far away would I have to park? How much walking would be involved? Would there be seating that could handle me? Because when you get to be that size, you don't know. You know, if you walk into a new restaurant and it's just booths, you're walking out because there's no way you're going to sit. So I got very good at knowing, you know, kind of if I had friends that wanted to go somewhere new, I would do some internet searching and make some phone calls and make sure that it was something I could do. And if it was somewhere I knew I wasn't going to fit, I would just tell people, oh, yeah, I'm not going to go. I'm not feeling great or I just I'm busy or something else came up. And you get really good at kind of making excuses and making up stories as to why you can't participate in something. 
I know the exact feeling you're describing. You know, I definitely experienced that as well. And I, I, I know what that's, that's like to have to feel like you're, I guess, kind of hiding out. I mean, there was a period where I, stay, I stayed for months in my condo, like, you know, probably like a decade ago, where I was just, I didn't leave for months because I felt you just don't want to be seen. So I, I, I definitely know what that's like. And thanks for sharing that. I'm, I'm curious if we can dive a little deeper into the food addiction part where you're, you're, you're at 500 plus pounds or 540 and you're, uh, you're using food. What are exactly, I mean, if you look back now, what were you feeling in those moments that you felt like you needed to eat that amount of food? Joy. It wasn't because I, if people were to ask me when they were like, you know, were you an emotional eater? It wasn't that I was consciously responding to things that were happening in my life. It was, this was my life. You know, food was my entertainment. Having more food was my entertainment. So t- take me to the moment where things started turning around for you. Yeah, so it, it's interesting because I had, uh, you know, in 2010s, I was at a point where I had attempted to move cross country and that didn't work out. And I came back to the East Coast. And for those people that work in higher education, they're going to know like higher education moves pretty fast in terms of theory and development. And they believe that kind of once you're out, that they've moved on without you. So getting, I came back to the East Coast with this desire to, you know, find another job in higher education and also the desire to find something that wouldn't be, you know, physically strenuous, all of those things. And I had a lot of trouble finding work. You know, I was over 500 pounds. And, you know, by the time I walked in from the parking lot into an interview, I was a sweaty mess, you know, barely breathing, like having to find a way to hide in a bathroom for a few minutes to collect myself, all of those things. And I realized then that I needed to make a change so I could find work was really what was the the thought that came into my head. So that was when I discovered the paleo diet and kind of cleaned up what I was eating and got really kind of committed because like I said, in, in a lot of ways, I'm an all or nothing person. Like the switch is either in one direction or the other. And I flipped that switch. And by spring of 2013, I'd gone from 540 to 210 pounds. And that was for my 40th birthday was the goal. And I did it and went on a vacation actually out here to California where I'm living now to celebrate my 40th birthday and did really well with my quote unquote new lifestyle and had a great vacation. And that was to celebrate my 40th birthday, went to Disneyland, had a good time. It was awesome. And I also kind of stayed on my food plan, made the right choices that were kind of supporting what I was doing. And I hit the airport on the way home. And the first stop in the airport was the the gift shop to grab a magazine and get a water. And I kind of had it in my head that I had done so well on vacation that I deserved a treat. So I bought a bag of Reese's peanut butter cups, which were a lifelong favorite. First ones that I probably had had in well over two years. And I ate those waiting to get on the plane and then had the snacks on the plane that they provided. And by the time I got to the layover in Baltimore on the way back from California, there was an Arby's and I love the Arby's roast beef and cheddar sandwiches. So I decided that I was going to have a cheat meal. And just be like, okay, this is going to be my first cheat meal. Let's do this. Bought some Arby's, ate that, got home, got up the next day, went to work and actually was feeling kind of like crap because, I mean, let's be realistic. I had been clean paleo for two years and over two years at that point. And so then I was putting wheat and sugar and a lot of things into my body that I hadn't done before. And then, you know, a long flight, got in really, really early, basically got in early in the morning and went to work a few hours later. And my boss was like, you don't look right. You should go home. 
and sent me home. And I stopped at Whole Foods with the purpose of buying some broccoli and chicken. And because I had no food in my house, having been away on vacation and decided that I was going to continue the cheat meal and say, okay, you can have a cheat lunch today because the Whole Foods bakery at that point, once a month would have um, caramel bacon brownies. And this was going back eight years. Bacon wasn't everywhere yet. It wasn't in everything yet. So when they had them, it was rare. And so I was like, oh, I got to get one of those and I'll get some ice cream to go with it. And by the time I had checked out at Whole Foods, I had convinced myself to have a cheat day. So I stopped at McDonald's on the way home and I actually ordered pizza that night. And as we headed into that weekend, I basically kind of convinced myself, hey, you haven't had any of these foods in so long. What would it hurt to take a couple of days off? So I took a couple of days off that soon became a week off, convinced myself to take a month off. And probably by the end of the first week, I had cemented it in my head that eating the way I had been eating for years was just not me. It wasn't normal. It wasn't the way I should be living. I wasn't happy. All of that. And basically, I talked myself back into living the life I had lived before. And I started rapidly putting on weight, like very, very rapidly to the point that even when I talk about it now, a lot of people don't believe the amount of weight that I put on. I, I put on almost 30 pounds that weekend. Uh, within the first month, I had put on 100 pounds. And by October of 2013, I had put on 270 pounds. So I went from spring of 2013, 210 pounds to fall of 2013. I was 480. And it's like going down the hill of a roller coaster or kind of like a, a sled down a, a snowy hill where you're not really in control, but you kind of made the choice to get on it. And I let my life go back to what it had been before completely, like very much completely. That summer, I was so wrapped up in food and my food addiction that I was isolating myself from people. I had stopped posting on social media. I had a big Facebook group back then. I just basically said to them, I have some stuff going on. I'm not going to be posting much for the next couple of weeks. And then eventually I shut it down and I just let life go back to what it was before. Like I let it go away and I can reflect on it now as to why I think that happened. But in the, in those moments, it was me just thinking, well, you failed again. So do what makes you happy. Wow, man. Thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, that sounds like it was a really emotional roller coaster to go through that to gain the way back so rapidly and, and just go, just go through that. It sounds like, um, I mean, it sounds like a lot to process. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I think it speaks to the power that I gave food in my life because I was not posting on, on Facebook. I wasn't sharing pictures. Uh, I remember the first time that a picture of me showed up on the internet again in the middle of all of that. And I was like, people are going to freak out. Back in April, I had a big 40th birthday party, and that was the first time a lot of people had seen me in a couple of years. You know, friends came in, drove in, flew in for it. And that was when you get all those stories from people of, oh, you know, thank God you did this. We thought you were going to die. We thought you we didn't think you were going to live all of this stuff. And so there I was falling back into all of that, going right back to where I was when they all thought I was going to die. And in, in, I think. There's like two paths your head can take at that point. It's react to it and kind of have a wake up moment or kind of be like, well, this is the way it's going to be. You know, maybe they were right. Maybe this is what's going to happen. Maybe this is where I'm headed. And I think I definitely went to that place of resignation and stayed there for a few years. And that's what because you asked the question, like, when did change happen for me? 
that was a big change, but that was just a physical change chasing the scale for a couple of years. Like it was not about, I made no changes to my mindset. I made no changes to the focus of what I wanted from life, how I was living life. I was basically 10 years old again, following the rules to get the results without doing any of the work that I should have been doing. So it was a few years before I, I came back around and had some, some family situations happen where my parents were taking custody of two very small children that were in our family but needed a home and had a discussion one night with my dad where he basically said, you know, we're going to, your mom and I are taking on these children. At some point, we're going to need your help. You know, we're going to need you to kind of help us get through this and deal with them and help with them and all of those things. And it wasn't him having a discussion with me like, I think you're going to be dead. And so I need you to make change. It was him sharing what was going on for him. You know, it was purely a moment that was about him. And of course, then in my head, I start to make it about me. You know, I start to think about, well, this is great, but probably in two or three years, I'm not going to be here anymore, you know, if I don't do something. And it was, I define that as the first real night of my life that I went home and said to myself, I want to live. It was the, the first point that I saw some value in my life that I had never really thought about before or put into words or kind of put into thoughts. And it wasn't that I decided I needed to lose weight for them. It was because I decided I needed to lose weight for me because I felt a sense of responsibility that was outside of myself. Before that, it had always been living this life that I, I define as very selfish. Like it was just about fulfilling my pleasure, giving me what I wanted, and not thinking about the impact that I was having on anyone else or the rest of the world or my community or any of those things. So that was February of 2017. I knew I needed to do something. I knew I needed, if I wanted to live, because I had at that point resigned myself that I was going to die soon. Like that it might have been a couple of years, it might have been a little longer, but I had even basically written a letter I kept by my bed, basically telling my family that if they found me dead, that I had lived a happy life and don't worry about me. And it was this whole self-absorbed missive about trying to make them feel better because of what I had done. And I can, I can look back on that now and realize how ultimately selfish that would be, not only to put your family through that, but then to leave them a note that says, hey, don't worry, things are fine. And I eventually burned that letter. I didn't want it to exist anymore. I didn't, I didn't want that choice to be something that existed in the world when I had started to make these changes. Like, and I knew low-carb diets had been things that had worked for me before, and I had felt because a big part of food addiction is not just the emotional, psychological side of it, but physical addiction to food. You know, there's a lot of hi highly processed, hyperpalatable foods in our world these days that they're constructed to make you want more when you eat them. And I ate all of them. So I needed to make some real changes. So that was when I think one of the things like, is, especially when you're an overweight person, even when you have successes and failures losing weight, you kind of keep up on what's going on in diet culture, you know, what's out there. So I'd heard the keto words start to be thrown around, starting to become, you know, a little bit closer to the forefront for people. And I bought some books. Uh, I bought two books specifically. I bought Jimmy Moore's Keto Clarity and Vinnie Tortorich's Fitness Confidential. And over the second weekend in February of 2017, I read those books, made the decision I was going to kind of adopt a ketogenic lifestyle. And <laughs> I remember staying up on, on the Sunday evening and cleaning out my house, like 
boxes and boxes of food that I knew I could not keep in the house, um, that I could just not have there. And I remember one box was stuff that wasn't opened. So I put that in the trunk of my car with the purpose of, of donating it. And the rest I just threw in the dumpster and I cleared everything out and I got started the next day. And that was February 15th of 2017. Wow. And this is the second time that you lost the 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. So, and the funny thing is, so I, I never got back up to as high as I had been, 540. And I think that was because, you know, my body was starting to break down. And that was one of the reasons why I knew I wasn't going to live for long. Like I had severe swelling in my legs. If I scratched my leg, it would weep fluid and take a long time to heal. If you sat down with a list of symptoms of type 2 diabetes, I had all of them. And I think that it was out of control blood sugar that prevented my weight from going back to where it was before. Uh, because one of the things when you're experiencing very high blood sugar is your body doesn't hold weight. So I had, a, I had neuropathy in my feet. I had all of those things going on. I knew if I walked into a doctor's office that I was going to get diagnosed with at least diabetes, if not high blood pressure, heart problems, all of those things. And I was terrified of that. I hadn't seen doctors in years, like r- literally decades without seeing a doctor, because I think when you're living that life, you know what you're going to hear. And I didn't want to face that reality. So I actually didn't. I saw a doctor for the first time that year, actually, because I was hospitalized with pneumonia that almost killed me. I finally agreed to go see a doctor and basically was told in the emergency room that if I had waited a few more hours, I wouldn't have lived. And that was a big part of what had been happening for me. Now, at that point, that was after Thanksgiving in 2017. It was into December and probably a week or so before Christmas that that happened. And I had actually fallen off keto during the summer for a month and put 40 pounds back on because that's what my body does. It's very good at, like I said, very good at losing weight, very good at gaining weight. But for the first time ever after that month, because one of the big things I worked on when I, when I decided to lose weight again was I knew I needed to be more mindful. I needed to pay attention to how I was feeling, how food was making me feel. What was I dealing with emotionally? All of those things. So when I went off the rails in July of 2017, I was paying attention to the fact that, like you asked earlier, like when you ate that food, did you feel bad? I was finally paying attention to how food made me feel. I was paying attention to what those binges made me feel like. And even though I was still doing them for a fair amount of time, I was very much like, you can't keep this up. You know, you're going to go right back to where you're before. You're starting to feel the blood sugar issues again. You're starting to see all these things happen. You know, either you're going to throw your life away right now or you're going to make change. So I got back on, kept making change. So by the time I got the diagnosis with pneumonia, I was down over 100 pounds and doing really well. Like things were surprisingly going really great. But I developed, like I said, that pneumonia. I don't know if you've ever seen an x-ray of your lungs, what they're supposed to, what's it supposed to look like. So they should be completely black. Like it should just look like two black sacks. And my lungs looked like two giant white pillows with thin pencil black lines at the top because there was so much pneumonia and inflammation in my lungs that uh, my blood oxygen, you know, your, your blood oxygen should be like 95 or above for you to be actively functioning. And when they put the monitor on my finger in the hospital, I was in the 70s. And so they immediately put me on oxygen at the highest level, basically felt like I had a wind tunnel blowing down my nose started me on antibiotics. I was in the hospital for over 17 days. And during that time, I was basically bedridden in the hospital, dealing with all of that. 
we discovered during that experience that at some point in my past, I had a heart attack and didn't know it. There was no physical damage to my heart, but they could tell through the way my heart functions electrochemically that that had happened at some point. And it was funny because a doctor, when he discovered that, wanted to have a discussion with me about it and said, so, you know, when do you think this happened? And I'm like, I have no idea. And he's like, well, did you ever have a night where you went to bed uncomfortable? I went to bed uncomfortable every night for decades. Like, I don't know, you know, I can't pinpoint exactly when this happened. But it was all a huge wake-up call for me (laughs) that I was doing the right things. Like, they were initially kind of wary when I told them kind of the diet I was following because keto wasn't that big then. And But very soon, the doctors were like, keep doing it. Keep doing what you're doing. This is working. Your numbers are great. Everything is great. And I started to become known as the keto guy in the hospital. And nurses would come and ask me what I did and what they could do. And they wrote keto in big words on the whiteboard over my bed. So because I had a lot of issues <laughs> with the hospital food. And that was a challenge, but so Mike, for just be for people who are listening who are not familiar with keto, what exactly? How do you describe it? A ketogenic diet is primarily uh, restricting carbohydrates and um, eating moderate protein and a higher fat percentage. That's kind of like a, a baseline of it. How you approach that varies a lot. There's a lot of different ways to quote unquote do it. For me, when it started, it was just about restricting carbohydrates, and I ate protein and fat to satiation. I had some good training from those, those years that I was paleo to know what a plate should look like when you're eating protein and vegetables primarily. The first kind of half of my journey, I never counted anything but carbs. I never counted fat. I never counted protein. I didn't count calories. I didn't track any of it until I needed those tools. I think that's one of the things you realize is there's different times at different points in your journey that you need to use different variants and tools and choices. And, you know, I went through doing different periods of eliminating certain ingredients and eliminating certain foods and seeing how I responded and kept that mindfulness, not just on my emotional state, but put that into my approach to nutrition. Like, how was I actually feeling eating certain things? If I loaded up on keto treats or was eating too much nut butter, like was, how was I feeling? Like I very quickly learned I was a nut butter addict. Add that to the food addiction list. Right. Nut butter is definitely a very um, satiating, palatable food full of very, very caloric dense. So definitely enjoyed some nut butter in my life as well. So the question I want to ask is, so with dieting, anytime I've gone on a diet and I restricted myself in, in, over the years, I've always wanted the things more that I was restricting. And for, for, for many people that they go on diets feel the same way. So I'm curious with keto, you know, it sounds like you, you've been doing keto for now close to four years. Um, just over four years. So it's obviously working for you. And I, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's bodies and, and, and chemical makeup is different. So what is, do you feel um, the restriction and wanting those carbs more now because you're restricting them? Or do you feel that this is just a great way for you to live like you were enjoying the, you know, the fast food and processed food before, and now you're just enjoying the keto lifestyle and you don't feel that restriction and discipline? How do you describe that? Sure. Again, it goes back to that idea that there's a physical addiction. And I think for me, I was definitely physically addicted to those calorie-dense carbohydrates, to sugars, to the fast food, to all of those things, to the processed foods. And eliminating them is when I finally, and it, it wasn't actually until I started working with a coach myself, um, I got down to toward and into the 280s on my own and then started putting weight back on, quote unquote, eating keto. And I was like, okay, you're going to have to break down and actually start tracking your macros and seeing how much food you're eating. You're going to have to pay attention to calories. All of that is going to have to come into play. 
And I tried to tackle putting a plan together on my own and got very lost, very, very lost. Because there's, even if you just Google keto macros calculator, there's going to be 20 of them that come up and every one of them will give you a different answer because they're all basing kind of what they're doing based on their own kind of, yeah, it's very complicated. I thought about keto years ago as well. That's, I, was, I couldn't do it for more than an hour. You know, it never worked for me. That's why I'm really curious. So I, I started working with a coach. He was someone that I was connected to on Instagram. Now, at this point, you know, I should also say, like, you, you talked about my, my before pictures being kind of wild. I used to post them on Instagram all the time. My account was very much like a, a sideshow of gluttony. And when I made the change to go keto and start focusing on my health, I kept the same account. Like, I had to make that decision. Am I going to delete this page and start a new one? What am I going to do? And I decided to kind of make a change on that page. And I initially lost a fair number of followers who were following along. I think there was almost in some levels a death watch going on. But I had some people stick around and, you know, started having new people follow me and connecting with new people. And I think the the health and fitness space on Instagram is probably one of the most supportive things I've ever discovered in my life. And I connected with an individual who he knew I was talking about coaching and finding a coach. And he said, I'm starting to work with this person as a coach. You know, I'm going to become a ketogenic nutrition coach. Do you want to be my first client? And one of the things that was holding me back from selecting a coach was I felt I was uncoachable. I know that I can be an obstinate bastard and that I was going to push back on everything that was put out to me and told to me and all of those things. So I decided that if I was going to be his first client, he at least then wouldn't have built all those defense mechanisms up yet. So maybe it would be a good working relationship and maybe I could get pull a couple things over on him, all of that. We started working together and uh, his name is, is John Shane. And at the time he was working with the Deeper State Keto Program, which is something that Robert Sykes, uh, Keto Savage, created. One of the big shifts we made was that I went from counting net carbs to total carbs and not just counting total carbs, but doing some severe carbohydrate restriction that I had never really done before. And it was doing that and upping my fat percentage that for the first time, because I still think for that first year and a half or so on keto, I was white knuckling and missing those foods like you were asking, like, was I, was I missing all those things that I ate? Like I knew I was doing the right things and my body felt better and I had more energy, but that the, in the back of my head, they were still there. And when I got to this place of working with total carbs, tracking tightly, upping my fat percentage very high, around 75 to 80% of my calories, I felt physical relief from my food addiction. Like I, I finally knew, started to feel, started to learn what actual hunger feels like. Because I think one of the things, especially as someone who's severely obese, you start to so twist those hunger signals in your body that you think you're starving all the time. You know, you think that you're always hungry and you start to realize that was it real hunger? Was it head hunger? Was it boredom hunger? And I started to be able to work on, is my body physically hungry or do I just want to eat something now because of another reason? I said a little bit earlier that I never identified as an emotional eater. And what I eventually came to realize was I was very much an emotional eater, but it wasn't that I ate in reaction to emotion. I ate to suppress my emotions. You know, I ate to suppress everything. So one of the things that also started happening was I started having really intense feelings and really intense emotions, things that I never really learned to cope with as an adult because I ate my way through them. So that became another big part of it. So realizing, you know, what was driving that hunger and was it real hunger or was it not? Were there other things going on? Was I just using this as a coping mechanism? And getting into this well, well-formulated ketogenic diet gave me that freedom to do that. Like I, I say that. 
I didn't really feel freedom from food addiction until I started doing that, until I got into that place. So right now, would you consider yourself a food addict still? Or are you, do, you, do, you, do you not um, resonate with that now based on what you just shared? I'll be a food addict for the rest of my life. I don't think it's ever something that completely goes away. So, so, so then it's ketogenic part of your sobriety? Mm-hmm, completely. And that's the thing I wanted to get at. Like you were talking about restriction. I don't see restriction. I don't see looking at a ketogenic way of eating as something that's restrictive to me. It has given me more freedom in my life than I ever knew. Yes, 100%. I think if there's one thing that I've taken away from, you know, the way I eat as well, it's definitely different than you and like, you know, different strokes from folks, every, everything works for everybody. The freedom that you feel not having to struggle with, you know, grappling with the, with the cravings and, un- and out of control behavior around food is way more powerful than the freedom to eat whatever you want to eat. And I think that if we were to leave um, people with one, one idea and somebody at the beginning of their journey haven't really figured out yet um, the motivation to do it, you, feel, you may feel restricted, you may feel like it's a lot to handle, but what's on the other side of not dealing or grappling with this struggle any longer? Oh, for sure. And that, it's one of the things, you know, I hear it all the time, like when people are like, you know, so you're never going to eat cake again. You're never going to have cake at a birthday party. You're never going to have dessert at a restaurant. You're never going to eat cake. For some reason, people are obsessed with cake, which I understand. But for some reason, that question tends to always come phrased as you're never going to eat. It's not you're never going to eat bread again. You're never going to eat pasta again. It's like, what about cake? Tell us about the cake. And what I realized was the develop, the, the place I had to get to wasn't that I have to get up every day and say, I'm never going to eat cake again. I have to get up every day and say, if I don't eat cake again for the rest of my life, I'm going to be able to live and thrive. I can survive without it. So if I get to a place where I'm going to make a choice to have it, I'm making an active choice to have it. It's not a, I need this or I'm going to die. It's not, I can't live without this. You know, that's one of the things I hear a lot from people. They're like, I can never go keto. I can't live without bread. Literally, you can. You can live without bread. You might not want to. You might not be able to, like, because of, in terms of being able to stay to a plan, but you could. You know, you, at the end of the day, you really could. And to me, there was something very freeing about coming to that realization that it wasn't that I was restricting just to restrict myself, that I was restricting to give myself the gift of health. I was restricting to give myself the freedom to move through the world and do the things that I wanted to do that I couldn't do, you know, the things I could never access. You know, it's almost and like I think I alluded to a little bit earlier, like there was a lot I missed out on life and it wasn't that I knew I was missing out on it until I realized that there was a lot of things that I couldn't do until I realized there were a lot of things that I was choosing not to do and choosing not to allow to be experiences, you know, choosing to do these different things. And if quote unquote restriction is what brings me that freedom, I'm okay with it. Because I don't think anyone ever would go to an alcoholic and say, yeah, but can you live without alcohol for the rest of your life? Like, can you do that? You know, I think that's still why there's kind of these perceptions around people that deal with issues of food addiction that for some reason, if they get to a place where they have to abstain from something, that they're punishing themselves. I don't see abstinence around different foods as punishment. I see it as a choice that is empowering me. You know, I'm choosing not to eat those things. I'm choosing not to put my body back into that place. You know, I'm choosing not to get back to that place emotionally. Like there, you have to empower yourself. You have to find that place of these are not things I'm doing to punish myself. And I think we see that too much in, in the, the fitness and health space and the weight loss space 
reactionary fasting, punishing yourself after making choices, feeling bad about things, all of that. Like, I don't think we realize the literal weight that that ends up putting on us because we beat ourselves up so much over these things. Whereas instead, if eating a certain way makes me feel good and gives me energy and gives me better sleep and I can breathe, why not celebrate that? Why not see that as something that has had a positive sum? So yes, at the end of the day, I'm not buying Wonder Bread in the four pack anymore with three jars of Skippy peanut butter. And, you know, at one point in my life, I was drinking probably close to four to six liters of a regular Coca-Cola a day. So I don't do that anymore. Am I punishing myself by not doing that? Or was I unknowingly punishing myself then? Wow, that's really powerful, Mike. So Mike, last question for you um, before we wrap this up is what's one area in your life where you are feeling full in right now? I think that's a great question. And, And I think for me, what it is, is the transition I've made into helping other people. It's this finding knowledge and experience through what I went through, through everything that I went through that I just shared with you and all so much more, you know, that obviously we don't have, you know, even time to talk about today and finding a way to actually give that back to other people. And, you know, initially that started through my Instagram page and what I do there, but I've now actually started actively working as a one-on-one ketogenic nutrition coach with individuals and helping them navigate their way, not only through figuring out, you know, how keto should work for them, but also I work with people on goal setting and defining their why and helping them create a vision of what they want their life to look like in a year and five years and 10 years and help them realize that if they're willing to put the work in, there's hope there. I I think sharing that has become probably one of the most fulfilling things to me is being able to have a discussion with someone and having them learn through their experience. And I think that's a big part of what coaching is for me. It's not just about sharing my experiences, but it's about helping people navigate their own and help them build that mindfulness that I think is so key to building lasting success. Like I I think it's too often people when they reach out to someone or even when they reach out to me about coaching is they want to know well, I hand them a meal plan and tell them exactly what to eat. And I don't do that. I make them do the hard work to figure out what are the foods that they're going to respond best to? What are the things that they need to have around? What are the things that they can't have around? And helping people embark on that journey and see progress and have some amazing, amazingly powerful things happen. I, I have a woman that I was working with who one of her, her end goals was uh, to get pregnant eventually because she had not had a regular cycle in years, and she and her husband desperately want children. And so a big part of that for her was working on hormonal healing and and losing weight and moving herself forward. And just a few months into working with me, she actually got pregnant. Her cycle became normal again. You know, we were having her eating lower total carbs and higher fat and the powerful promotion of hormonal healing that came from that and the weight she was losing. She (laughs) very unexpectedly got pregnant and is actually going to have the baby very soon. Seeing that as a literal change happening in a person, you know, I've got another client who uh, just this week, he's halfway to his weight loss goal. And we've started talking about, you know, what does life look like though? Like it's this idea that there is no finish line. It's just about making lasting, sustainable changes in your life. And the fact that I can now help other people navigate through that is something that I, I wake up and look forward to every day. That's incredible, man. What great work you're doing in the world to pay it forward, share these lessons and help people work through their own, their own challenges, limitations, so they can actually feel the way that you feel, the freedom that you feel in your life. So 
I mean, that's a super inspiring, man. Super inspiring story um, and journey that you've been on. And um, yeah, man, I'm really grateful that you came onto the show to share it all um, with everyone listening. There's so many great lessons here. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on, man. I'm really excited to to talk about these things and dive into it and, and hope that even just one person listening hears some similarities in my story to their own and realizes that they can empower themselves to make change and it's not going to be easy and it's not going to turn around in a day, but it is possible over time. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they could use some support, please share this episode with them. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or sign up to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Take care, be well, and feel full.